Evidence and Answers. Today's society has changed little from centuries ago. We deal with a wide number of different faiths, beliefs, as well as lifestyles. What should be our approach to those who have chosen a gay lifestyle? How can we affect our culture for Christ and display His love for all? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message was taught by Glenn Stanton and was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Glenn with part one of his message entitled, Loving My Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Neighbors. The title of this session is named after a book Stanton recently wrote titled Loving My LGBT Neighbor, Being Friends in Grace and Truth, which is an exploration of how Christians should interact with their gay or lesbian neighbors. Glenn T. Stanton is a director of Global Family Formation Studies at Focus on the Family and a research fellow at the Institute of Marriage and Family in Ottawa, Ontario. He debates and lectures extensively on the issues of gender, sexuality, marriage, and parenting at universities and churches around the world. Stanton served the George W. Bush administration for many years as a consultant on increasing fatherhood involvement in the Head Start program. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Glenn Stanton. Thank you, Jojo. I appreciate that. Well, welcome. What we're going to talk about today is something that is very unique and new to the church, and that is how do we deal with this issue of our gay and lesbian family members, co-workers, neighbors, and folks who come to our church? How do we deal with them, one, apologetically, but just two, as Christians? What should be our position there? And that's very, very important. And this book that I wrote that I'm going to be speaking from, the gist of this book comes from two places. One is it comes out of my relationships that I've developed with people that I've debated on the other side of the issue. And for the last 15 years, I've gone to lots of college campuses around the country and around the world debating this issue. And the more you do this, the more you'll debates one person more than once, twice, you know. And as we've, de- as some of us have de- has debated, have debated, you know, multiple times, you start to develop friendships and relationships and, you know, meaningful ones where you're sharing stories about your family and you're wishing each other happy birthday when their birthday comes around, those kinds of things. So what I've learned is how do you do that? How do you do that faithfully That's the first part. But the second part is doing that in the proper balance of grace and truth. I think we in the church get that really, really mixed up because there are some who, you know what, when it's time for truth, let me know. I'll pound the pulpit. I'll point fingers. You know, I can go for it. And then we have the grace side 
And I think this is the one we have the greater problem with in evangelicalism is, oh, good Lord, it's such a divisive issue, and it's so ugly, and it's so nasty, and, you know, it, it makes us look so bad. Can't we just, you know, just get along? Well, yeah, we can get along, but you know what? We can't ignore certain things. So how do we live in this balance of grace and truth? John 1.14. I mean, John 1 is such a beautiful chapter in terms of who God is, what his nature is, and it says that God became flesh in John 1.14 and came down among us as one fully from the Father... Full, full is a definitive term, like pregnant. Can't be a little full, pretty much filled, almost full. It's full. Full of grace and full of truth. So when we ask the question, what was Jesus more full of? Grace or truth? The answer is yes. Okay? And we even think, well, you know, how would Jesus treat the gay and lesbian individual? That's an important question, but we tend to answer it in the sense of Jesus would be pretty chill. You know, he, can't we just get along? You know, you're, you're fine, I'm fine, everything's fine. And one of the things that I like to say there is kind of the WWJD is generally a good thing, but what do you do with John the Baptist? Okay? John the Baptist was the truth guy. He pounded the pulpit. Who warned you, you wicked generation? You know, John the Baptist did not WWJD in that sense, right, that we think. Well, what would Jesus do? But Jesus said there was nobody born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. So we need to take that and know that, okay, to be like Jesus doesn't mean, and even this false idea of Jesus that we're, you know, kind of like, Quan Chang Quain, the, the Kung Fu guy, you know, kind of this guy who just kind of drifted around and talked with people. We are, and we need to be full of grace and full of truth. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to know that we never interact with anybody at the same time in absolute grace and absolute truth, right? It's this balancing act of these things. How do parents deal with their kids? Sometimes it's, you know what? You're going to get all truth here. Clean up your room, stop back-talking me, or you're going to stay in your room for the rest of the week. The other is, you know what? They're cranky, they're tired. You know what? Give them a break. Just let them go to bed. Let's, you know, let's not make this a big issue. And then sometimes it's kind of both of those things. And so we need to live in grace and truth with ourselves. That's what God does. With our friends, with our family members, but also with gay and lesbian individuals, just like we would anybody. Now we need to know, first of all, and I start the book this way with what I call the great equalizers. But as I was writing the book, I got about halfway or three quarters of the way through, and it just hit me these great equalizers, that this is really what it comes down to. Because in the book I'm wrestling, how do we deal with the gay co-worker, the gay friend, the gay family member? What is it that's different about them that makes that so difficult? What is it that's unique there? 
Well, one thing before I get to the great equalizers is we have to understand that it has to do with homosexuality, but it doesn't. Most of us feel anxious about this issue because it's so different, right? I mean, like, I just can't relate to that. How could somebody be attracted to somebody of this? I mean, I just don't have a category for that whatsoever. But we also feel the same way about salsa dancers. You know, I've never met a salsa. What are they like? What are they? You know, whenever we meet somebody who's different than we are, a homeless person, a mime, you know, you're like, I don't know how to act around this. Yeah, that's just the natural human kind of thing. So we need to recognize it as that. Why do I feel nervous around this person? Well, it may be because you're judging them and their particular thing, but it probably is just because of, you know what? I've never met a person like this before. And guess what? They probably have never met a Christian fundamentalist either. So kind of what you do is you go, you know what? You're my first gay person. You know, today's the day. And I'm probably your first Christian fundamentalist. So let's stumble through this thing together. I've actually done that kind of thing, and it breaks the ice. I was telling a story earlier. One time doing a debate at a college at University of Texas, and it was actually University of Texas at Dallas. And it's the gay and lesbian campus groups that will have me come be a part of these debates. They'll ask me if I want to go out to lunch with them or dinner after the event. And I always say yes, because it's always fascinating. Just I get to meet you, you get to meet me. On one of these trips was this nice, and I mean that, this nice transgender woman. Born a guy, but transing to a woman. And she had not been doing the woman thing for very long, and she wasn't real good at it. And you just, first of all, with the trans people, they're sweet, sweet people. I mean, you could just see that brokenness within them. Number of gay and lesbian individuals, just claws and teeth, you know, like atheists, okay? But then you have nice atheists. You know what? I don't have a beef with you. I hope you don't have a beef with me, but we can discuss the issue. But in the trans community, you typically have their, they're just more, they're more meek. They're more, and I don't mean this ugly, but needy. You know, I mean, you, you do, you just want to hold you, it'll be okay, okay? So this woman, and that's another thing is, when I'm writing, I will refer to them as what their body is. But when I'm interacting with them, I will call them what they want to be called for the sake of relationship, okay? And I have Christian, how can you do that, Glenn? And I don't mean this disrespectfully to the transgender people, but if I meet you and you want to tell me you're Popeye or Santa Claus, you know what? I'm going to call you Santa Claus. No sweat off my back, just, you know, so we could just get along and talk. So. One, we don't need to pick false fights. But when I'm writing on the topic and I'm writing objectively, you know, I'll deal with it objectively. But when I'm dealing with it personally, that's a different matter for the sake of the relationship. Okay? So, dinner with this trans woman, we get up to say goodbye, and she goes, Can I give you a hug goodbye? I've never hugged anybody from the religious right. I said, Well, 
I'd love to. I've never hugged a woman that used to be a dude. And, you know, she just laughed. And that was the kind of thing where, you know what, we're kind of both self-deprecating. And I think it's very important for, and I'll come at it self-deprecating. So they're like, okay, this guy doesn't take himself too seriously. They just heard me debate. They know that I'm you know, not compromising, that I'm tough. But to also show them that I don't take myself too terribly seriously. That's very important. So they could say, okay, he's hardcore. He didn't compromise. He was tough. But you know what? This is a guy that I'd like to hang out with. And for us to be able to make those distinctions. Okay, so the great equalizers. How do we see and deal with the gay and lesbian individual? The nervousness that we feel that is natural just can simply come from, you know what, they're different just like with us, okay? But here's what hit me as I was halfway through the book. It really comes down to this. The gay and lesbian individual in front of you, and first of all, that is very important, that phrase, the person in front of you. Os Guinness, I trust, has been talking about this or will talk about this later, is so much of apologetics is the eye-to-eye connection the person-to-person connection, the listening. The best, most effective apologist is somebody who listens well and listens long, okay? So when you've got another person across from you, that is a very divine thing because of the first great equalizer. That person images God in a unique way that no other human being does. And we've got to say, I can't see it in this person, but I know there's, there's a piece of the God puzzle, if you will, that that person possesses, whether they realize it or not, that nobody else possesses and that God is excited about them. Okay? So, the great equalizer. They're just like me. Loved by God cared for by God, created by God with a particular uniqueness. And I'm going to talk in a minute that, first of all, there is no data, there is no research, there is no scientific finding that says anybody is born gay. God created me this way. But nor is there any research that says that people choose it. First of all, when people ask us, well, do you believe it's natural and inborn or chosen? Neither. The answer is, it's just not that simple. Okay? It's a whole collection. First of all, sexual creatures, it's not just because I have, pardon me, a penis and it works. Yeah, I mean, God made us as complex individuals. And lots of different things happen. And every one of us has a unique story. So there is no science, no science whatsoever, and the APA and other gay-friendly organizations who have looked at this issue honestly say we cannot find any science that tells us definitively why people turn out this way. Okay? So don't let anybody say or shame you like, you know, just like people are black, just like people are Asian, just like people are male and female. I'm just gay. And if you don't accept me like that, it's just like not accepting a black person, Asian person, male or female. 
do not buy that at all. And first of all, that's the other apologetic thing. Say, you know what, Michael, can we set this aside? I am not going to engage you as Michael the gay individual. Just like I'm not going to say Michael the sous chef or Michael, you know, the, the Anglican, you know, bishop. Michael the human being. That's who I want to relate with. And if you have a problem with that, then we're just going to have to have a problem. You know, you see him as larger than he is, even if he can't. I think that's very, very important. And what they'll start to realize is, okay, just see me as Michael. See me as Sarah. Okay, the first great equalizer. You're a human being made in the image of God, loved passionately, deeply by God. No exceptions. That doesn't apply to some people more than others. Okay? Me being from the South, it doesn't quite as apply to Yankees as much as it does to Southerners. But, you know, it's, it applies to all of us. Okay. Now, the next thing is there's a terminal illness that each of us have, and it's called sin. And that terminal illness is terminal. Left unattended, it creates death. Stone cold, hard as a nail, dead, spiritual, physical death. And it's not more dead for some, less dead for others, just spiritually dead. That means each of us have a great, great need for salvation, for repentance. I have to repent of my sin. I cannot come to Christ without doing that. You have to repent of your sin, of gossip, of back-talking, of pride, and of homosexuality, of my lust, okay? That puts all of us in the same box. I'm no better than you. You are no better than me. I don't get a pass on my sin. You don't get a pass on your sin, okay? So every one of us has a need to come to Christ. You know, speaking to this other person, that's what we believe as Christians. And that hammer drops upon me, and it drops upon you. The answer to being slammed by that hammer is the same for me as it is for you. We are equal. And so I have the need for repentance. You have the need for repentance. I can't redefine my own sin, and you can't redefine your own sin. Okay? We are equal. And when they say, yes, but, well, tell me what your, as Pee Wee Herman would say, tell me what your big but is. What you'll just keep coming back to is, again, we're the same. We're different, but we're the same. I'm city mouse, you're country mouse. I mean, you know, there are these things that make us different, but humanly, we are all the same. You think about them coming to our church. What do we do with them as they come to our church? And first of all, again, let me say that them would be kind of, you know, those gays, is kind of like saying those Christians. Well, what do you mean? The Pentecostals? What do you mean? The Presbyterians? The Calvinists? The AG folks? The Seventh-day Adventist folks? The Catholics? I mean, which Christians are you talking about, right? It's the same with those gay folks, you know? They're individuals. 
And there are things that are generally true about certain groups, like you can say true things about Pentecostals, Charismatics, Lutherans. And so, you know, but we can't say collectively those people are these people. They're separate. They're individuals. And we've got to see them as individuals. I don't want to know about the group that you're a part of. I want to know about you. You know, what brought you to faith in Christ? What convinced you? What need did Christ fill? The gay individual, tell me about your story. When did you first realize that you were gay? Um, how did that come about? What they'll come back to you, and they say it to me all the time, Mr. Stanton, when did you first realize that you were heterosexual? You know, it's kind of this, if I had to come to a point to realize I was gay, when did you realize that you were heterosexual? And I've answered that in a frustration, frustrated sort of way. One time I did this, I go, two words, Charlie's Angels. And, um, you know, it's, just, it's a stupid question. And then the guy that I debate, he said, when did I realize I was gay? One word, chips. Remember that police show punch? The leather boots, tight, you know. To sometimes have fun there, but also not bite. And that's a big thing of apologetics is don't let them set the agenda sometimes and know what they mean by the questions that they're asking. Some are honest questions. Some are just trap or smokescreen questions. And just don't fall for them. Don't bite. One of those smokescreen questions, and I want to get to three points about in the church, so remind me about that. What do we do with individuals coming into the church? But one of the smokescreen questions that we get is, okay, you as a Christian with your Bible, you think that the scriptures teach against homosexuality? Well, there are other theologians who look into the scriptures with great authority and great care, and they come to a very opposite conclusion. And there are a number of those people who do. You know, you can read their books, things like that. But one of the big questions that they'll ask you, I never having done this for 20 years, I never engage them about what does Deuteronomy actually mean? What does Leviticus actually mean? What is the sin of Sodom actually? What is Paul writing about in Romans? Not because I don't want to engage them, but because I've never seen that resolve itself well. Because it's, you lay out all your evidence, we lay out all our evidence, and guess what? We both leave believing what we came in with. So it's a kind. Of, it's just there's no value in going there. Okay. If you want to deal with that in a seminary classroom and take the time, the weeks to break that down, but just don't even go there because they are going to get you in the smoke screen that you know. It's like in philosophy. Philosophers are digging up so much dust that you just can't see anything and make sense. What's interesting is I will always take them to Genesis 1 and 2. I have read all of the theologians who sort of gay sex God and say, okay, he's pro-gay. None of them deal with Genesis 1 and 2, the design, the creation, because they can't, okay? So you go to that, you talk about that, but here's the big thing that they typically say, okay, it comes down to this, we are Christians, Christ. What is it? You tell me. 
where did Christ say anything about homosexuality and that was bad? And I even had one guy debate me and he goes, this is, he held up this blank piece, this is everything Jesus ever had to say about homosexuality. The audience applause, everything's wonderful. And you know, I'll take the paper. This is everything Jesus had to say about stiffing your waitress on her tip. But we can bet from other things that he said that he's probably not real big on that idea. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us again for another exciting show. We hope you enjoy Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh